Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. I'm Pat Nevin. This is Ali Riley. Hi, this is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and you're listening to the London Is Blue podcast. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London Is Blue podcast. Your home for all things Chelsea FC. Dan, Mike, Nick, and myself cover all the match reviews from the latest Chelsea matches. We cover the team news and even throw you some exclusive interviews. Thank you already for being an awesome listener. And you know what? Let's jump right in. All right, Chelsea fans, Dan here. This is another episode of the London is Blue podcast. Quick programming note, this is the second half. This is a two-parter. If you missed the first part, head back in your podcast feed. We spent a ton of time with Rom, who's our guest on this episode. He joined us to talk about Frank Lampard's time at Derby last season. He watched every single game of Frank Lampard's Derby. And boy, oh boy, did he have a ton of great information to give us. If you missed the first part, hit that back. This second part focuses on what we could expect from Frank Lampard at Chelsea in the first season as it relates to his squad and then season expectations. So we hope you enjoy the second part. And with that, let's get in. All right. Well, that 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 right there is a, a quote, right, that we have to kind of dive into a little bit as we talk about and maybe transition beyond some of the tactics into what Frank, Frank Lampard's announcement as Chelsea manager means for some of the current personnel. We'll, we'll start with striker. So obviously, you know, we, we did see last season Drew really strong at some of that hold-up play that you're talking about, but not always the most mobile individual. We have Mishi expected to come back in some capacity, and we're also going to see Tammy Abraham uh, most likely as a part of that first-team structure. So 
if we're ranking it today in terms of who's that first, second, or third choice striker based upon what you've seen at Derby last season and what you know about those current players and their abilities, where do you think it's going to land? Maybe where does it land at the start of the season and where is it going to land six months into the season where we're in December or in January and Frank has really had a time to settle and cement the squad. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, subject to change because, (laughs) you know, he's, he's a, he, he's a young manager after all. And uh, for all you know, he might, he might switch things up a little next season according to his personnel, which would be ideal. But assuming he doesn't, as that's all we have to go on. uh, I would say that, it would be a toss-up between Batshuayi and Abraham for his preferred striker. Uh, so I, I I recognize that this opinion might not resonate with a lot of people because Batshuayi hasn't really had the most prolific of seasons last season. Although I will remind you that he has his his goals to his goals per minute ratio or his xG per ninety ratio is uh, sorry not ratio uh, his numbers um, they are still you know, pretty good, just as they always were, whether he was at Chelsea, when he was at Dortmund. So I don't think it's the best idea to judge him at how he did at Valencia, which was, you know, uh, a club in not such a great place at the time uh, with regard to his whole situation. And Crystal Palace, uh, which, again, you know, not not really the most conducive, conducive environment for a striker. So... I, I think in terms of attributes alone, Abraham and Batshuayi have the edge over Giroud. And it is tough to choose between Abraham and Batshuayi, although I would say Abraham. And uh, although ideally, you know, you, you talk about six months down the line. And what, what I've seen from Lampard so far leads me to believe that he is someone who is very much open to making changes in his tactics as the season progresses. So... I, I don't think it's impossible that we see a two-striker formation being deployed from the start at some point in the season. Mm-hmm. Because something I've always felt about Derby was that Marriott and Waghorn have, you know, th- their skill sets do overlap in some part. But given Marriott's extreme proficiency at uh, making runs in, um, in behind the defense, and getting into great positions to link up with his teammates, he had an almost, there were aspects of his play that were almost complementary to Aghorn. So I feel that that would have worked really well and something he might have tried at Derby if he were to stay. Right. As that would also enable Marriott to have a lot more minutes. So I think we could see a two-striker formation at Chelsea maybe a few months down the line or so because I can see maybe Batshuayi and Giroud or Batshuayi and Abraham working pretty well. Or, or if not, then maybe with an attacking midfielder, like a second striker or so, with maybe Mount uh, going in to play off the striker or so. I, I could see those adjustments being made. Well, I think in, you know, it feels like it's so long ago, but it was only 2015-16 when we saw Mishi get you know twenty you know close to twenty goals, but over twenty goals plus assists in uh, Ligun uh, with Marseille. So and he was playing at many times with a second individual up top. So if we talk about getting the best out of the players we have, a sneaky, suspicious, sneaky, delicious type of opportunity might be Mishi plus another individual, which then allows them to play off each other, whether that's a Tammy Abraham, whether that's a 
Mesa Mount or Christian Pulisic or, you know, they, they, there definitely are some options that we would have there. Oh, yeah. Pulisic is a great shout, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's, it can't be the American Chelsea podcast <laughs> without making sure we get at least one plug for the hero of Hershey and our Captain America um, in an episode. <laughs> um, so we talked about strikers. Um, you know, where where you think about, obviously, Pulisic naturally is going to sit in that you know front three if we're thinking that it's a front three situation but we also have pedro we have william we have hudson adoy returning at some point from injury where where do you think we're feeling about some of those attacking or attacking players who primarily play on the wings who are you seeing as being the biggest beneficiary of a lampard system uh, or what lampard may be trying to do who do you think is maybe the biggest loser in that process um i actually don't think there are any losers in that process. That is the answer we wanted to hear. <laughs> because, uh, as I said, they're not too different from the ones uh, at at Derby, right? Because at Derby, with the type of white players he wanted, um, there were times when, you know, he, he would play Mason Bennett out wide, or um, he wanted Mason Bennett to run down the wing because he was more of a battering ram type of white player. But the, when you think about Harry Wilson and Tom Lawrence and Florian Yosef Zun, um, you, you see wide attackers that sit quite narrow and like to interchange and engage in very rapid link-up play with themselves and one one of the midfielders and the striker. So th- there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of intricate link-up going on up front and. I would expect that William and Callum Hudson-Odoi and Pulisic and, yeah, I mean, probably Pedro as well are all quite proficient on that given the teams that they have played in and given what we've seen of them as well. So there's no reason to believe that any of them are losers, really. I, I expect all of them to fit right into the system. And I, I, I know a lot of people may not want to hear this, but I, I think William might end up, end up doing okay, you know. Because uh, because of his attributes, uh, as as someone who who he he's he's pretty good at dribbling and he he does function well in uh, r- rapid forms of play. He might not be the best when I mean I feel he's best when he's not given that much time on the ball because he he tends to dwell on it a lot and his decision making process just dwindles as as a direct function of time. So I, I think that. William will do better than some people are thinking. And yeah, I, I expect to see good things from pretty much all of all of our attackers. Uh, and I think some of them could even play a, a more central role if, if required. I think William can play a more central role if required, if it's just behind the striker. Even Pulisic can do that. As um, I'm not sure on hudson Adoy, but I, I think he should be able to as well. Uh, I just have my doubts on Pedro the most with regard to adapting to a more central role. But... Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think we should be good as far as wide attackers go. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fuss about Hazard leaving, and understandably so, because you know he, he's he's among the best in the world, and we have relied on him way more than we should have ever since he joined. Just a touch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, even more so in last season. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we're good. Uh, as far as attacking players go. It, it won't be too bad, or so I hope. And all right, so if you were concerned, listeners, before you heard Rom talk about it, your mind should be put at ease from an attack perspective. Let's make our way back a little bit further, though, and we have the midfield, which is, 
a little bit more of a question mark. We have Jorginho, who we brought in for the purpose of helping an Axari system. We have injuries to Ruben Loftus-Cheek. We have players like Bakayoko coming back. We have Kovacic being acquired permanently. Where do you feel the midfield is at? Who do you think those starters are going to be if it is that midfield three? Uh, and then maybe who are those, you know, maybe who are going to end up as the rotational players? Uh, okay, yeah. Wow, that is a very tough one. <laughs> just just a touch. You know, we saved a heart. We gave you the easy one with attackers early. Now we're transitioning to a little bit more difficult conversation to solve. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so the the defensive midfielder role is, well, I'm really not sure what, what to say about that because, uh, as I said, he has a lot more defensive responsibilities than... Jorginho did last season, and he needs to be able to hold that line better than Jorginho could. Uh, so, uh, I would, I would think that uh, Golo Kante might start as the defensive midfielder, even though he has the attributes to play anywhere. He he really is, I mean, the complete midfielder for me. So, and he would easily fit on that right side of central midfield because he can. He can break the lines with his movement on the ball. Uh, so I think he could easily fit on that right side. He could also easily fit in the base of midfield. So we could see him there. We could also see maybe Jorginho at the base. But that really depends on how he's coached in, into the role. Because obviously, while he does have dis- defensive responsibilities, uh, uh, another significant part of the responsibilities of Huddleston and Johnson last season were to play that occasional Fabregas-esque ball um, in behind the opposition defense. You know, uh, so many times we saw Fabregas and Costa linking up. Uh, In a similar way, I saw Johnson and Huddleston play a lot of these balls in behind the defense for for Waghorn and uh, Mario to run onto. And even uh, even balls um, onto, you know, wide flanks for either advanced fullbacks to receive because, you know, the, the, they'd create these central overloads with their wide attackers going more centrally and midfielders pushing on a bit. So that would create some space on the flanks and then Huddleston or, or Johnson from um, a more central half space further back would be playing these uh, half diagonal kind of long balls into space for the fullbacks. So I see that as something that Jorginho and Kante can both do. But, you know, um, where, where Kante may not be as proficient with his passing, uh, which is, with respect, very good. Uh, Jorginho may not be as covered on the defensive side of things. So we might see either one of them in the defensive midfield role. And as far as that left side of midfield goes, that that was a very important position with Mason Mount being there. And uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise, I think we will see Mason Mount there again <laughs> this season. <laughs> because... Uh, going by what Lampard said about Mount on several occasions last season, he kept saying that Mason is ready to play for Chelsea. He expects Mason to play for Chelsea in the following season. And, you know, now that he's manager of Chelsea, I would be incredibly surprised if Mount were to go on another loan. I think that he will be part of the squad if, you know, uh, if, if logic is a thing. And he, along with... Uh, Loftus-Cheek when they get back will be very important in that left side of midfield and on the right side uh, Kovacic was not I mean I'm not fully behind his purchase 
because I think that clogs up the pathway for Loftus Cheek and Mount a little bit because mm-hmm. I can see I can see them both being in the same side. So 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 the thing about Mount is that uh, a lot of people have this uh, wrong notion about him that he is a pure number ten or that he's a you know uh, an attacking midfielder in the essence. And while it's true that he has attributes that any number ten would crave, uh, that being the progressiveness with his passing and creativity. Uh, the fact of the matter is that he has been developed in such a way by Lampard that he can easily fit into a number eight kind of role, which is what Derby really had last season. They had like two number eights, two shuttlers, one being more creative, obviously. But Lampard can easily uh, play Mason Mount on the right side of midfield as well and have him have that more workhorse kind of role because Mason Mount was absolutely instrumental in leading the press and pressurizing opponents Mm -hmm. into uh, giving turnovers. So you could say Mason Mount either on the left or the right. Uh, You could easily see Kovacic there as well. Uh, Or you could see Kovacic on the left because Kovacic dribbling is among the best best in the world in his age bracket, I would like to think. And... Kovacic is very important in breaking those lines in midfield if teams try to press us in midfield. We need players who can dribble their way out of situations where they have opponents pressing them and, you know, immediately create space. That's very important in breaking the press. So I I found that when he played Dwayne Holmes and Harry Wilson or Mason Mountain Wilson, two mobile midfielders in there, they were very good at breaking the press because they could dribble past it. So I could see a combination of Kovacic and Mount or Kovacic and Loftus-Cheek, you know, some permutation of the three, some com- sorry, some combination of the three sure. being played in the midfield. So I'm, I'm not so sure about Bakayoko. I I don't know if Lampard will want to keep him because we'll have six midfielders anyway if uh, Kovacic comes back, which he will. And having any more than six midfielders in your squad is, well, not easy to manage. If uh, Even having six is not easy to manage. If you have... Uh, if you really want to manage your dressing room well, in my opinion. So if Wakayoko were to stay, I can see him being on the right, having that more workhorse kind of role. And uh, as goes, um, so Ross Barkley and Kovacic could probably fit either on the left or right. So there's a lot of fluidity between Kovacic, Barkley, Loftus-Cheek and Mount. And while I think Loftus-Cheek and Kovacic are much more suited to the left, I think Barkley and Mount could uh, easily switch between either of those roles. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of flexibility to maneuver in midfield as far as that's concerned. And uh, just just to note, still no role for Daniel Drinkwater. No space for Drinkwater in Lampard's 11, 23, 25, 52, whatever number you want to put on there, he is not going to be a top consideration. Oh, I really don't think so. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense logistically. It doesn't make sense with the system. You know, there, there's, there's, there's always the possibility though, that Lampard will switch to a permanent 4-2-3-1 and then uh, bring the band of uh, drink water and Kante back together. But, and and he may well play a 4-2-3-1 with, you know, Jorginho and Kante playing holding or something. Right. But, yeah, so even if he does switch to a 4-2-3-1, I think we have better options than drink water. Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, so that's uh, just the fun little Robin one there. And so (laughs) let's, let's pull one more back. So we have defense, we have defenders, uh, I think you have some people obviously seeing uh, Jada Silva leave just recently to Bristol City. Some people were thinking or holding out hope, and I know that you're a huge fan 
that he yeah. might get the chance to stay and be that next type of Ashley Cole individual on the left-hand side for us. Not meant to be, though, which means yeah. some combination of Alonzo, Emerson. Uh, you know, we are going to have um, you know, potentially Zappa Costa that he might be leaving on a permanent deal. We have Azpilicueta, and then we have some combination in center backs of David Luis, Rudiger coming back from injury, Christensen, Gary Cahill being gone, but maybe players like Fakayo Tomori, Kurt Zuma as options in there. And we also can't forget, you know, Ethan Ampadu, who was, you know, spent a lot of the time last season injured, but you know, obviously has a dual flexibility between center back and midfield. Where are you thinking? Do you want to start center backs? You want to start wing, you know, uh, left back, right back? Where you want to go first? Yeah, I think I'll talk with full backs just because I mentioned them earlier in the podcast. Um, I said that they might be potential question marks, but um, the good thing is that Lampard he adjusted his full back roles according to what he wanted out of the players that he had. He he didn't really ask his full backs to do what they couldn't. So. Uh, first, you have the case of Jaden Bogle, who is such a such a big talent at right back, and he was instrumental in breaking the lines because his passing was superb, his creative passing was very good, his uh, dribbling ability was very good, and that is something that uh, I don't think uh, Aspelikwada really has at this point in this point in time. He was he was always. Uh, much better at the defensive aspect of things, if you ask me. Uh, unless you want to, you know, consider all those crosses that he gave Morata to score uh, in <laughs> under Conte. The magic. <laughs> yeah, in that aspect, I mean, uh, Aspeliqueta is probably good at crossing from deep, um, and it's very important that Lampard's fullbacks are good at crossing. So, in that aspect, Aspeliqueta fits. But you know, the whole mobility, attacking aspects of it. He could, he could probably be functional, but he wouldn't fit hand in glove as maybe Reese James would, because I th- I think Reese James is he should be replacing Aspeliqueta in the side in the coming season or two, and it would be great to have a look at him when he gets fit again. It, it, it's so freaky that all these young players get injuries. I I could go on and on talking about that, but yeah, um, the. Uh, as I was saying, he adjusted his fullback roles according to his players' attributes. So while Bogle was a lot more attacking and, you know, a swashbuckling type of fullback, there was Scott Malone and there was Craig Forsyth on the left for for Derby. And neither of those players are particularly as proficient uh, taking on players and beating them over, you know, five yards. So... Uh, the role he had for them was more of uh, get get the passing going, have established a link up between the left sided central midfielder, Fikayo Tomori, the left sided centre back, and and the left fullback. So uh, establish this link up and aim to progress your way up the field with passing and link up rather than relying on individual qualities. And the thing about Malone and Forsyth is that they were very helpful with their crossing. Forsyth in particular was very proficient at um, crossing from, you know, the edge of the area, not 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 exactly to the byline. So Lampard doesn't really need his fullbacks going to the byline. It's more of getting to the edge of the area and uh, giving that in-swinging kind of cross for, to meet the head of the attacker or to just generally cause cause havoc inside the penalty area. So um, 
it doesn't mean that all, all our fullbacks have to be rendered obsolete because Marcos Alonso is a pretty poor crosser of the ball. Emerson isn't really up there, but I think Emerson has the upper hand on Alonso in terms of attributes. So I think we might see a role reversal in terms of the roles being asked of the left-backs. I think I think the left-back in Emerson might have more of the Bogle kind of role, and Aspelikwana might have more of the Forsyth and Malone kind of role. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so the, the funny thing is, you know, you know how Ashley Cole went back to Derby. Uh, Ashley Cole, in my opinion, was a lot more proficient in attack than uh, Forsyth and Malone. And he he was, um, and that reflected in his play when he was playing in place of either of those two, despite being 38 years old. So I think Lampard will very much ask of his fullbacks what he thinks they can do. So right. yeah, I think the, the left back will be probably Emerson in a more offensive role. Well, and then we also have the interesting U-turn for uh, Juan Castillo, another option that might be potentially more of a long shot situation, but he obviously has played uh, in a fullback capacity for yeah. the Chelsea Academy and has shown quite an ability to be successful at crossing, at dribbling, and uh, pretty much anything that requires the ball at your feet, which is, A, just exactly. good for a footballer in general, but B, great yeah. for someone that's marauding forward. Uh, I think he also could be maybe that uh, question mark or wild card option because he looked gone, gone, gone uh, in not signing or renewing his contract. But if he's staying, potentially that is a little bit of the Lampard effect. And maybe these youths seeing that they do have a pathway from the first team in the academy, not just with the Lampard appointment, but the the Petr Cech appointment as well. Yep, yep. And that that also fits into, you know, the the interchange between the left-back and right-back roles that I was talking about. Because uh, Juan, Juan Castillo has played uh, mostly as a wing back, actually, for the Chelsea youth sides. And he has also played as a more attacking player for the Netherlands when he's been called up at youth level. So he is uh, he's clearly uh, very well placed with those attacking attributes. So, yeah, there's always that wildcard possibility. It would have been ideal if it were Jada Silva because there are few fullbacks I've seen in the championship who are as proficient on the ball as Jada Silva. Trust me, he's 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 going to have an upward trajectory over the next few years, and uh, um, we we might end up regretting it, despite the fact that he's you know five foot four or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Juan Castillo, I I hope he might get some minutes because if he's signing a new contract when he looked to be almost gone, uh, it must mean that it's because of the management team. Maybe they've had a chat with him. Maybe they've said that, um, well, we will definitely give you more of a look in than you you had at the at the previous regime even if it's just to start with in cup competitions, because that's how Bogle got us looking as well. Right. So, yeah. All right, so let's wind it down and get to the last set, which would be the center backs. Where are you thinking? You know, we obviously talked about the fact that Lampard wants those center backs to play the ball in forward, to make those runs, to you know be, yeah. a, be a part of the action and kickstarting the play, very similar to what Sari saw, or we saw in Sari's system. So... Mm-hmm. Who's your, your starting two at the moment? Ah, my starting two is Andreas Christensen and Antonio Rudiger, if he is fit. That is my first choice centre-back pairing. Oh, all right. Yeah. Um, so so centre-backs at Derby was a funny one because uh, he, he started playing out with this, uh, obviously, uh, ball-playing centre-back-oriented defensive system. And his first match against Reading when he took charge at Derby was with Curtis Davis and Richard Keogh in defense. Uh, these players are 32 and 33 years old, and neither of them are 
really that proficient in a ball playing center back role. So I saw them palpably struggle a lot in that first game. But the the good thing is that, you know, um, even for someone like Keo, who isn't terrible at these things, in the sense that he can step out of defense, and he did that most crucially against Leeds in the playoff semifinal, uh, he didn't necessarily have a great proficiency in these things, but he actually improved as the season went on, you know, at playing the ball. And I think that speaks to Lampard's ability to improve players. I think he improved a lot of players. He got the best out of the likes of Bogle and Keogh and uh, Forsyth and even Mason Mount or Bryson. I could go on. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, my first choice pairing would be Christensen and Rudiger for the reason that uh, one of these centre-backs has to be more adventurous than the other for, for me. Uh, and that was Tomori uh, at Derby. Uh, and that would probably be Rudiger or David Luiz in the sense that they don't need to play these crazy Hollywood passes that David Luiz does as often as David Luiz did under uh, Sari or Conte. Uh, they they can afford to do it with a reduced frequency. But I think that in terms of being good at it, uh, Rudiger is probably the best placed here, or maybe David Luiz, but on an overall combination of defensive and offensive attributes, uh, I think Rudiger should definitely be starting. And alongside him, Christensen, to, because another aspect of, you know, um, when you're talking about ball-playing centre-backs, it's more than just being able to dribble and do the things that look really good to the eye. It's about playing the passes that help Derby keep possession or keep the team, help the team, help the team keep possession in, uh, you know, the, the, the space between the defensive third and the midfield third. Because a lot of teams might press you there. Um, a lot of teams pressed Derby high up in the hope that their centre-backs would struggle. And they did for some time. But... The, the good thing was that Tomori and eventually Kiyo got really good at playing within these spaces uh, and playing their way gradually out of these uh, out of the press. So I think Christensen could be very important uh, for them doing that because he's very calm on the ball. So my starting pair would be Christensen and Rudiger with uh, David Luiz and subject to Kurt Zuma going to Everton, Fikayo Tomori as a fourth option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes uh, a ton of sense. It's very similar to how I feel, especially when we think about uh, Christensen also offers that ability to rush and play the ball forward. So I feel like the times we did get a chance to see Rudiger and Christensen as a pairing last season, their ability to interchange between one another versus the times where David Luiz would get played with them and David would really be the one moving the ball forward and the other would have to be a little bit more strange, didn't have that same type of interchange ability that ability on the field to interchange and not have to worry about what may happen or what may transpire, which, you know, if Rudiger's not available and ready to start the season, we will definitely see, in my mind, the Luis and Christensen pairing heading into the season. That is going to, you know, maybe maybe test us occasionally at times, but hopefully everybody's up to recovering after the, uh, the one uh, hiccup that occasionally occurs. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I mean... Uh... Uh, it's also, um, there. there's the fact that a lot of teams will maybe sit back against Chelsea as they did last season because the, the way things are more traditionally among teams like Chelsea in the Premier League is that um, a lot of teams are possibly going to invite you to come at them and try to break down their defensive structure. And for that reason, players like Christensen and 
uh, whoever the center back is. Even though they may not be as good with the line-breaking pass, they will have a lot of space to advance themselves with the ball. And that's something that I saw Christensen get better at when he was played uh, in, in the Europa League and the Cup games. Uh, just, just having that awareness to take the ball as further as he can um, in the right situations. And having the right choice of pass as soon as you get, you know, uh, uh, get uh, get around to the half line or so is very important because if you lose, them, if you have a turnover there, uh, you're pretty much done for with the line that they play. So that there's another that that's another reason why I think uh, Christensen could be very important for uh, Lampard given the tactical adjustments that might come with being in the Premier League and being a dominant team like Chelsea. Uh, and I think you know not only what we saw in the Europa League last season, but you know, when he was loan, on loan at uh, Mancha Gladbach, it was yeah. very frequent that he would be the person who was really in the back or even the times that he was deployed in defensive mid would be the individual exactly. carrying the ball yeah. forward to really help kickstart an attack or to really further contract the amount of space between defense and you know, are you know, the attacking player to really try to exploit the space appropriately. So I think, if, you know, what you're saying is very exciting to me as a uh, diehard believer of the Danish Prince and someone who's uh, very much a champion of Christensen uh, for him to maybe get that rebound moment that he started to see at the end of last season, potentially getting a chance to capitalize with a, a Rudiger injury heading into the start of this season. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, he's, He's obviously proficient in uh, areas further up as well because he's he's played defensive midfield as you said for Borussia Mönchengladbach and uh, the the Danish national side as well. Uh, although um, a, a few games of his at Gladbach were in a back three where he was with I think Al- uh, Alexander Dominguez and yes. Nico Alvedi. Um So uh, I remember watching a lot of Christensen that that season and. Uh, well, the, the the standout thing when you watch Christensen is that he is calm. I think he just got very affected by that mistake that he made in Barcelona, and it had a lot more far-reaching effects for him than it should have. I, I think that it may have broken down his confidence a bit. Obviously, this is all speculation, but based on the way I, I saw him play in you know subsequent games, I think that broke down his confidence a little bit. So I, I think that having a run of games for him at the start of the season would be very very beneficial and he seems to be in a better place overall right now right you've seen the you've seen the amount of times he's come out and said that he sees his future at Chelsea and he wasn't um he, him and his it had gone very quiet from his father as well who who you know kept having these occasional appearances in the in newspapers saying that he wants his son to play and all that so i think Christensen is generally in a more settled place right now he's he's been able to push on from that Barcelona game and some subsequent errors that came after that. And, yeah, I, I think he's going to be a very good option going into next season. He can play against this really top-quality opposition. Mönchengladbach got Manchester City and Barcelona, I think. Uh, they got Manchester City twice in a row in the Champions League when he was there. And he, he has no dearth of experience in playing against this kind of opposition. It, it's just that he, he may not have been in the best place mentally, sure. is what I think. So... I think he's come some way from that. He's, he's, he might be more more experienced. He's a lot more experienced than he was back then. So, yeah, I have a lot of expectations from Christensen going in, and I think he will fulfill them because, he, in a sense, he is still among the best defensive talents in the world for me. Mm-hmm. 
I well, I'm I'm right there with you. So let's think. It's day one. Frank Lampard is putting out the lineup for our first match of the season. Uh, not any of the multiple preseason matches we're going to get. Let's go from backwards forward. So we'll start with the keeper, and we're just gonna we're gonna pencil Kepa in there because I don't think it's gonna be <laughs> anyone else. Yeah. Um, we'll start left back, two center backs, right back. Who's in the starting lineup? Um, given what we know today. Okay, so we start with Kepa, obviously, and our left back, my left back, would probably be Emerson. Mm-hmm. Left center back would be David Luiz. Right center back. Andreas Christensen, and right back, Cesar uh, Felipeta, for the sole reason that Rhys James is probably unfit. Sure. Okay. So then we go to midfield. We're going to assume that we're doing the uh, 4-3-3. Who's your midfield three? My midfield three is a fluid midfield of N'Golo Kante at the base of it, Mason Mount on the left, and Mateo Kovacic on the right, with maybe... Kovacic and Kante interchanging roles hasn't been appropriate. I could see that happening. But yeah, that's my midfield three. Oh, that is going to get some conversation going. I love it. And then your front three, who's on the line there? Uh, yeah, okay. So my front three is Christian Pulisic on okay, where, where right or left. Doesn't really matter, matter for me, but I'll put him on the right. as I think that's where he's played more. Christian Pulisic on the right and... Willian on the left. Uh, I may be getting this totally wrong with left and right, but as I've said, I'm not a huge believer in players being hold down to their left and right roles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Pulisic on the right, Willian on the left, and they could easily be interchanging throughout the game, but I think they will start there, and up front, we will have Tammy Abraham. Oh, what a lineup. It is so exciting. The amount of youth in there, the amount of potential, but also enough of that old guard sprinkled in of Chelsea individuals under Frank Lampard. It's going to be a massive game. It's Man United <laughs> away. So first match at Old Trafford. But as we know, so Frank Lampard has already taken the piss out of United at Old Trafford. So Oh, that was magnificent. One of the best games. Uh, I, so check mark. We know he can do it. He can just now do it again at Chelsea, um, which is going to be a sight for everybody to see. So as we kind of round it out, Rom, any other final thoughts, things that you would leave people with um, talking about or getting people hyped up or excited for Lampard at Chelsea 2019-2020 season? Uh, yeah, I think that I think that now that it's almost done, I think that the time is right in a lot of ways. I think that there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, I think everyone is going to be happy about, I can't imagine anyone not being happy about seeing Frank Lampard, of all people, lead the side out and seeing all those promising youngsters in the squad under the tutelage of someone who has been so massive for our club. And the fact that we're going to expect some very exciting football as well is very encouraging. So I I think that if if we just go with the flow and keep our reservations aside for a little while that he's inexperienced as a manager and he has his tactical flaws as any young manager would really, that we're in for a very exciting season. We're, we're in for a more exciting season. I mean, personally speaking, I can't speak for everyone, <laughs> but I this is the most exciting season that I've felt since, um, I don't know. Since, uh, Mourinho, Mourinho return? Like that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, I I would agree. I think the Mourinho return was really exciting. Obviously, Antonio Conte, you know, tested in the Premier League, but such a magical season at the end of it. Maybe yeah. An- Ancelotti coming for the first, you know, for his spell, I think was a really exciting. exciting <laughs> Although well. I, I was like, I was like 12 years old at the time when Ancelotti <laughs> came. Although, I mean, I did watch that season fully and I have very fond memories from it. But um, yeah, Ancelotti coming in was exciting. Mourinho coming back for the second time for me was hugely exciting. And uh, no disrespect to Antonio Conte because when he came in, all I all I knew of him really was him beating us with uh, uh, Pirlo, Matizio, <laughs> and Vidal in midfield and Quagliarella up front. So um, I, I really loved Conte's first season. Things got a little sour in the second, but no, right. no disrespect. But just in terms of initial excitement, Lampard for me is probably right up there. There's there's nothing that really surpasses it for me. It's, I'm very excited. It's movie magic come to life at Stamford Bridge in SW6. So... I, we've been talking about it, Nick, Brandon, Mike, and myself. We all have some expectations. We've talked about where we think we'll finish this season in the Premier League, in the Champions League, and then in both the domestic cup finals. Do you have a, it doesn't have to be your permanent prediction, but at least for this recording, what would your initial feeling about how we're going to do under Frank in the first season? Where's that going to end? Yeah, all right. So in the Premier League, I am going to be realistic. And I'm going to say that we are going to finish somewhere between fourth to sixth. That may not be the best case situation because we may miss out on Champions League football. But I believe that it's for the, I don't want to be one of those uh, preachy people, but uh, I believe that it's for the greater good of the cause if we see a lot of our young players develop into players that could save us millions in the transfer market. So I think that we may finish fourth to sixth somewhere. I think that's realistic. People don't need to blow their tops at uh, reports that uh, the the minimum expectation is to not get relegated because that's very different from having a target. It's important to remember that. So I think we might finish four to six in in the league. In the Champions League, um, I think we might make it to the round of 16, maybe even the quarterfinals because if there's some one thing about, I mean, at minimum, I'm saying because... If there's one thing about Lampard's side is that he can get his teams absolutely charged up for a cup game if Derby is any evidence at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that. So I think we'll have good runs in all of the cups. Um, it's hard to really quantify where, but I think Champions League, I see us maybe reaching the round of 16 at minimum, quarterfinals maybe uh, in, in the more uh, realistic zone as well. And in either of the Cups, I expect us to make the semis of at least one. So we'll see how that goes. So these are my my uh, quote-unquote predictions. I love it. I, there's some excitement there. You know, I think, uh, you know, not going to name names, Nicholas, because um, he'll be <laughs> listening to this at some point, uh, is a little bit more... I would say uh, pragmatic because I, you know, I think I'm giving a little uh, blue tinted glasses to it. Yeah, I think I, we'll, I think we'll finish top four. I think there's there, there's too much talent on the squad, and I think the the removal of Eden Hazard, which is obviously a massive hole to plug and fill, especially with no opportunity to go out and sign new players, is going to be really really a massive hurdle in itself to go through or a massive challenge to pass through on it in Frank's first season at Chelsea. But I think that 
hopefully will galvanize the squad in a way to lift all boats in that moment and allow players to be more successful as a team rather than kind of relying upon the individual brilliance. I, I agree with you. I think we hit either a round of 16 or quarters. I think we, we get to at least one of those cup finals and probably win one because Frank only knows what one thing and that's winning. So um, oh, yeah. if, there, if there's a place where he's going to do it and feel inclined to do it and push for it harder than ever before, it's going to be in front of the Chelsea faithful and it's going to be wanting to do them proud in his first season. And uh, I would rather it be a cup final rather than winning magically winning the Premier League, which isn't going to happen because then the expectations will be way too high. Um, but a cup final in the first year domestic would be a really nice start to his managerial career at Chelsea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm just really buzzing. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we're going to start the start the bounce. Um, but before that, we want to give a massive thanks to Ron for joining us on the podcast. Uh, for those who don't know, you can find him on We Ain't Got No History doing amazing articles like the one that we just detailed and dove deep into in this kind of audio form of it. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter. Rom, where should people go to read you, follow you, and then also hear your bon- uh, your band's music? Uh, right, so you can follow me on my Twitter handle, which is, uh, I'm not going to spell it out because it's a little weird. But yeah, you can probably hopefully just find it in the tweet that comes from London is Blue. Uh, I, I tweet a lot about championship football, so just be wary. Uh, also, I, I write on We Ain't Got No History about Chelsea. I have a medium blog with some, uh, with some, EFL analysis, uh, English lower divisions. It's called Ramblings on Medium, <laughs> and yeah, you can uh, you can find my band's music on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever you name it. It's my band is called Project Mishram. We we fuse Indian South Indian classical music with a lot of Western genres, tending to veer on the heavy side of things, and. You can find a link to that in my Twitter bio as well. So, yeah, no, that, that's it. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. We can't thank you enough for giving all of us the lowdown on what we should expect from Frank Lampard in his first season at Chelsea as the manager. That's right, not a player, the manager on the touchline. And we can't be more excited after having this conversation. So, Until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.